The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll talk about Trump's effort to change the way seats in the House of Representatives are apportioned. It has been based on a state's total population. He wants to exclude the undocumented, which would mean California would lose two or three seats. The case was argued before the Supreme Court on Monday. David Cole will comment. He's the nation's legal affairs correspondent and national legal director of the ACLU. First up today, Georgia, the center of our political universe right now, the place where our future will be decided on January 5th, when Georgia votes for two senators, which will determine which party controls the Senate and thus the fate of any Democratic initiatives after Biden becomes president on January 20th. For comment, we turn to Joan Walsh. Of course, she's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and a political analyst at CNN. She also produced the 2020 documentary, The Sit-In. Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show. We talked about it here. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Great to be back. Well, first, let's review where we stand. Biden won Georgia by 12,284 votes out of 5 million Uh, He's the first Democrat to win Georgia since Bill Clinton did it 28 years ago. Georgia also had two Senate races on the ballot in November, both with incumbent Republicans, and neither one got the 50% Georgia requires. So the state requires that the top two vote-getters face off in each race on January 5th. Let's just pause and contemplate this fact. Neither incumbent Republican senator was reelected in Georgia. That's just as amazing as Biden winning. How come the Republicans didn't win? What's Trump's explanation? Trump's explanation is that he was cheated out of the win. Um, But then that gets very complicated because, you know, let's say Democrats cheated, John. Why wouldn't they cheat and just get Ossoff couple points over the line. Uh, so, you know, the, the the complete devolvement of the Georgia Republican Party is really very key here. And uh, I don't want to put too much on that, but the fact that that Trump is maybe sort of trying to help their runoff uh, incumbents while also just insulting the the top two Republicans there, uh, Governor Brian Kemp and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, is just throwing everybody for a loop. Um, So that's the, I want to say the sideshow, but it might be the main show. It really might doom them. The Republicans, starting with Trump, have said that Georgia's Secretary of State, this guy, Brad Raffensperger, should resign, even though he's a Republican, What has been his response to these calls that he should resign? I wish he was a United States senator, basically, because he has had the uh, backbone, let's say, to stand up to Trump and the two the two sad Georgia senators and just say, you're lying about me. He's faced death threats. I mean, if Lindsey Graham had a tenth of his backbone, the country might be a different place. If if Mitch McConnell did, you know, it, it, his reaction, which is, you know, kind of sweet and naive, I I voted for Trump. 
I don't know why he's attacking me, but he's wrong. If there had been more of that starting, you know, January 21st, 2017, we might all be in a different place, including the Republican Party. He has been the rare Republican to really swing back at Trump, which is glorious, in my opinion. We are told that Georgia Trump supporters are considering a boycott of the Senate race because of the fraud claims. What exactly is their logic here? Well, the logic is that Trump was cheated out of a win, even though, you know, Brian Kemp defeated Stacey Abrams. He he was the the previous secretary of state. He closed a whole lot of polling places in black precincts. He really did what he could to bring the levers of power down on her. But even he is vouching for this Biden victory. Um, and so, it, you know, it, it's it's hard to understand what they think they're ultimate game plan is. But what we see is Republican voters asking, well, why should I vote in January when my vote didn't count, according to St. Trump, Father Trump, um, on on November 3rd? And, you know, I, I enjoy certain things too much. But, you know, Ronna Romney McDaniel, I know she dropped the Romney to assuage Trump's feelings about her uncle, but she is a Romney. She went to Marietta, Georgia, which used to be a very safe, very white suburban part of uh, Atlanta. She was campaigning for Leffler and Purdue and saying how important it was. And she got shouted down by these voters who were like, why should I waste my time, energy, money, whatever, um, voting for these Republicans when I know that I was cheated last month. So it really could be like the ending that the writer's room wouldn't have chosen because it's too perfect. Well, let's talk about the, the, the two Senate races. Recent polls show both of them essentially tied. The first one You've mentioned Republican Senator David Perdue is being challenged by Democrat John Ossoff. Perdue was first elected in 2014. He's a former CEO of a bunch of companies, including Reebok and Dollar General. He's also the cousin. Dollar General is my favorite. <laughs> He's also the cousin of the former Georgia governor, Sonny Perdue, who's the current Trump Secretary of Agriculture. His opponent, John Ossoff, is familiar to us all because he's the guy who ran for Congress in suburban Atlanta, Georgia's 6th congressional district in 2017, and narrowly lost to a Republican woman, Karen Handel. That's the district that once gave us Newt Gingrich. And in 2018, a Democrat, Rep. Lucy McBath, flipped the district, went to the House. A black woman succeeded where a white man failed. You covered that race for the nation. How did Lucy McBath do it, and how did she get reelected in November? She got reelected easily, and that's fascinating. I mean, there's a lot of demographic change. And I remember talking to Stacey Abrams, you know, who ran for governor, the great, great leader of voter mobilization there as she was running for governor. And I think at the time she told me, well, Georgia's about 60, 40, 60% white, 40% of color. It, it's, it's changing closer to 55, 45. 
I, I covered Lucy too, and she would say she got a head start with the mobilization that Ossoff triggered, which was really suburban resistance moms, which is a lot of that district, but also organizing um, in the African-American neighborhoods. Uh, and, and where I think she kind of finished the job, I think she did a better job because she could see the numbers with Latino and Asian American Pacific Islander voters, which hadn't been enough of the Ossoff focus. She's turned it into a safe seat. That seat isn't even purple anymore. I think Ossoff did something that changed the district. And now, you know, he's running statewide. He worked for John Lewis. He's running on that. He's got Raphael Warnock, the head of the Ebenezer Baptist Church, Dr. King's Church, as his running mate, the other candidate. They're running as a team. And it's it's actually kind of inspiring because the things that Republicans ding each of them for, you know, they're trying to turn Warnock into, you know, Reverend Jeremiah Wright. Um, and into some anti-white, anti-American, whatever. And Ossoff stands up for him, and then Warnock stands up for Ossoff. So they're not going to be able to play these Democrats against each other. Um, and they're going to build on on their strengths, on each, so, each of their strengths. So the Reverend Raphael Warnock is running against Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler, so this is a white woman versus a black man. I have two questions about Kelly Loeffler. Uh, first of all, has she ever won an election? No. She's a rich white lady who actually Brian Kemp chose. I mean, uh, Trump, it's, it's fascinating because Trump wanted Congressman Doug Collins, who also ran for the seat. And Kemp said no. So that's, that's an old, weird distinction between them that goes back before this. You said that Kelly Loeffler was a rich white lady. Is she the richest person in the Senate? According to Forbes magazine, she is. And she's used it. She's also using just the worst kind of race baiting to beat Warnock. And there may well be a backlash, even among white suburban voters who don't want to see that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I read her in that Forbes piece. Her husband may have a billion dollars, and he owns the New York Stock Exchange. I didn't even know that was possible. I didn't know anyone owned the New York Stock Exchange before this. Her husband owns the New York Stock Exchange. And, and I have another question for you. She had a really significant challenge in the Republican primary from this congressman you've mentioned, Doug Collins, which prevented her from getting 50%. What, what was that about? Well, he wanted the seat and Trump actually backed him. But the choice was Brian Kemp's and Brian Kemp, Governor Brian Kemp went with Leffler. And, you know, there's all this talk about how, oh, she was seen as more moderate and she might appeal to the white suburban women that the Republican Party is hemorrhaging, not just in Georgia, but pretty much everywhere. But she really never chose to do that. That wasn't what she thought was her strength. She chose to glom on to Trump as closely as Doug Collins. You know, the interesting, crazy thing, and, you know, it's like a car crash that you can't look away from. She is being attacked by Trump supporters like 
his erstwhile attorney, Sidney Powell, who's claiming that Doug Collins likewise got cheated out of, you know, that he won. He actually won the primary. So, I mean, that's not true. None of this is true. But the the doubt that it's stirring and the angst that it's stirring among, you know, Republican base voters, it really it really makes the 2016 Clinton Sanders mix up, especially after the WikiLeaks publication. It makes that look really super tame and like nothing. This is serious violence, you know, Republican on Republican violence. The conventional wisdom is that the reason Democrats won in November was that it was an anti-Trump vote. And now that Trump has been defeated, Democrats in Georgia have less motivation to go back to the polls on January 5th. So the two Republicans in the conventional wisdom are likely to win re-election. The Biden agenda will be crushed in the Senate. On the other hand, Trump is going to Georgia on Saturday... We talked about this at the beginning here. He recently called the Republican Secretary of State, quote, an enemy of the people and said he was, quote, ashamed that he endorsed Brian Kemp for governor in 2018. So it's still going to be about Trump, it looks like. What do you think might happen at Trump's visit and after? Maybe we will be surprised and maybe he'll rise above this, but but I doubt it. But, you know, what I'm hearing from Democrats in the state, it's not that they're not enjoying this. They're human, let's be honest. But they also know they don't really control it. He could turn it on. He could turn it off. They, they could all come together. I mean, I wrote a piece about this last week, and I was like, you've got to admit, Republicans often feud and then come home for the election. So that could happen. And so what I think Democrats are focused on is really keeping up that black turnout, really figuring out how to keep up the uh, Asian American Pacific Islander turnout. Uh, It increased 91% from 2016 to 2020. That's unheard of. Latino turnout increased 46% in those four years. So Stacey Abrams had a vision about the new Georgia project, and it became a voter registration group, but it also was a vision of the new Georgia being young people, Asian Americans, Latinos, African Americans, and suburban, you know, moderate to liberal suburban whites. So what I hear is that people are just focused on that. They are going to tune in to the car crash. They're going to tune in when he, you know, comes down and we'll see him on TV, I assume. But the one great thing is, I have to say, they're back on the doors. They're door knocking, which people largely gave up, Democrats, excuse me, largely gave up because of the pandemic. And I, you know, with hindsight, it's easy to say that was not really the right idea because Republicans continue to do it. And also, You're basically standing outside. You can be six feet away. You can have a mask. There are are safe ways to do it. So they've started that again. And they're trying to activate these newer parts of their base as well as their traditional base. It's complicated. I would never say this is easy or they've got it. They They don't have it. But it is doable. 
I understand the door-to-door effort is going to include the union Unite Here that did the great job in Arizona with door-to-door work, creating the victory there. They not only wear masks and face shields, they hand out masks to the people who they're talking to. The, they're, they're planning a enormous turnout operation in suburban Atlanta and in the black and Latino pockets of Gwinnett and DeKalb counties. They're planning on having 400 canvassers work, working six days a week, going door to door, working closely with Stacey Abrams Fair Fight and other organizations in Georgia. That is the plan, and it seems like a pretty good one. I think it's a great one. Uh, I, I think that the canvassers should be paid canvassers. I think it's tough to leave this to volunteers, but I think the campaigns get that. And if you're asking people to not only show up on the doors, but give out needed PPE, um, you should be paying them. And there, there is, there's going to be probably enough money. So far, they've been outspent by the Republicans, but I'm not sure that's going to continue. I, I think they're, they're going to raise a decent amount of money and they should invest in people on the ground. And, you know, as we've talked about before, they have to figure out a way to leave some of those people on the ground or to develop people who live in those communities, because that's the missing piece for Democrats. I feel like Republicans do that better. Um, But Democrats parachute in a month before an election and blanket places with volunteer canvassers and don't really build political or social infrastructure or community. Um, And that's what I hear from the people who are taking this opportunity to continue their work. They didn't get a Thanksgiving break. They're not going to get a Christmas break. They're not going to get a Hanukkah break. They're not going to get a New Year's break. But they see this as an opportunity to really build, as Stacey Abrams says, the muscle memory of folks to go out and vote, figure out the best way for you to vote, whether it's by mail or in person or early, and talk to your neighbors about voting. And that's pretty moving to watch. Joan Walsh, her new piece on Georgia's Senate runoff is at thenation.com now. Thank you, Joan. Thank you, John. On Monday, the Supreme Court heard Trump's argument that he can exclude undocumented immigrants and refugees from the counts used to determine how many seats each state gets in the House of Representatives. He hopes to cut the number of representatives from California and other states with more undocumented people and increase the number of representatives from states that have fewer, which are mostly, of course, Republican. The change would also shift federal funding away from the Democratic states towards those Republican states and all this for the next 10 years. For comment, we turn to David Cole. He's the nation's legal affairs correspondent and national legal director of the ACLU. And he also teaches at Georgetown University Law Center. David, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, seats in the House of Representatives currently are allocated on the basis of total population rather than the number of legal residents. What's the basis of the current practice and how long has it been in effect? So the basis is the Constitution and it's been in effect forever. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, if you call the beginning of the, 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 the nation uh, forever. The, the Constitution, you know, the, the initially, 
what it directed was that the uh, apportionment be to the states by their respective numbers, and they excluded two categories from the numbers of people within a state, uh, infamously slaves, who they treated as three-fifths of a person, uh, and Indians not taxed. But notably, they did not exclude uh, immigrants. And then in, uh, after the Civil War, in the 14th Amendment, uh, they provided that um, the apportionment should be based on all persons in each state. Uh, and they specifically rejected a proposal to have it be all citizens or all voting uh, people who can vote, which at that time was, you know, did not include uh, uh, women, for example. Um, and partly they did that because there were large immigrant populations in the North, and they were worried that the Northern states would not ratify the 14th Amendment unless their immigrants were counted. Um, and then in 1929, Congress passed the first Census Act, um, which uh, on the basis of those two constitutional provisions required um, a count of the total population. You know, and again, what does total population mean? When you say the total population of Los Angeles is 4 million people, you don't think, oh, that's 4 million citizens and lawful permanent residents, but not counting, you know, the undocumented who are persons in that, in, in that area. Well, let's talk about the census for another minute. The Constitution requires that congressional districts be apportioned using information, as you say, from the census. California, I read, has the largest number of undocumented immigrants. Trump said in arguing for this uh, case, it was 6% of the total California population, around 2.4 million people. I wonder if that number is correct. How many undocumented people are there in California, according to the census? Uh, the census itself does not ask people whether they are a citizen or not. In fact, we litigated that issue uh, you know, two years ago when Trump sought to put a citizenship question on the census, <clears throat> which um, we argued would reduce, and was in fact the purpose, would reduce participation by uh, immigrants. Um, uh, we ultimately succeeded in the Supreme Court, and so he wasn't able to ask about citizenship on the census. So we don't have, you know, exact numbers, but I think those numbers are probably close, 2.5 million in, in California. And, the, you know, the, the purpose of the census and the purpose of apportionment is to give the states representation in the federal government um, that is proportional to the people that they have to govern. And California has to govern its entire population. It cannot choose to govern only, you know, the citizens and those with lawful permanent residence status or some other lawful status. It has to govern all of the people, and therefore it deserves representation in Congress that respects that obligation. So the census did not count the number of undocumented people, but Trump has ordered the Census Bureau to provide account of undocumented residents. And I understand they've been working on this. How's it going? Well, they've been a little bit hiding the ball on how it's going. Uh, they're supposed to be turning over this information, uh, some part of it on December 31st and the rest of it by January 11th. So, and they've been working on it for some time now. Um, this policy was announced in July, so that's not a lot of time, but a year before that, uh, Trump ordered them to start gathering uh, evident, uh, administrate what they call administrative records that would establish the 
um, immigration status of, of uh, people in the United States. So, you know, they have records on millions of uh, immigrants, uh, and they then have to sort of match those to the census responses, you know, and when they go to a house and they ask the house to respond to the census, or when you respond online and you give your name and your, your address, they then have to uh, match those and then seek to, uh, the idea is that they would then provide to Trump two numbers. One is the number of total people who live in each state, and the other is the number of total people minus those who they can identify as undocumented immigrants. And then Trump plans to take that second number and to base apportionment on that second number. Whether they will succeed in doing that is uh, a little bit of a mystery at this point, um, uh, which was part of what what the discussion was at the at the oral argument on Monday in the Supreme Court. So let's talk a little more about the that the, the argument on Monday. The acting solicitor general, somebody named Jeffrey B. Wall, argued that where the Constitution says apportionment for the House shall be based on the number of persons in each state, that, he said, can be understood to to require, quote, a sovereign's permission to remain within the jurisdiction, close quote. Is that a good argument? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think so. And, I, and, and from the questions of the justices, it did not appear that he had five justices that would agree with that view. That, they, pr- they predicate that view on the fact that there was a guy named Vattel, Edward D. Vattel, uh, 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 who wrote a book in French about the law of nations in which he defined the term inhabitant to be citizens uh, and people who, uh, foreign nationals who have permission to um, be in a, in a state. But he wasn't defining it for purposes of the census. He was defining it for purposes of international law. And there's no indication that that book, you know, was sort of uh, in common uh, distribution in, in, the, in the country at the time. And, and all the evidence of the dictionaries and the like at the time were that what they meant by persons in each state was all persons, all residents, all people who, are, who usually live and sleep in the state. And that is, in fact, the standard that has been used for 200 plus years without variance. Uh, Trump is seeking to change that um, and uh, and predicating it. The only real, you know, evidence, quote unquote evidence they can point to is this obscure international law treatise, uh, which, you know, I'm sure very, very few people even heard of, much less read. Uh, and, 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 and defining the term for purposes of, uh, of, of international law, not not constitutional law. Of course, we're all paying a lot of attention to the newest justice, Amy Coney Barrett. Trump said he wanted to get her onto the court while he was still president in the hopes that she would tilt decisions in his direction. Were there any signs from the argument on Monday about how she might vote on this one? She, t- I, you know, I, I've listened to her now in a number of uh, arguments in the court, and she's actually pretty hard to read. She is a justice, at least thus far, who has asked very hard and good questions of both sides, which makes it harder to read, you know, her. I mean, someone like Justice Alito, he leaves you no doubt where he is, and he is entirely an advocate up there. Justice Kavanaugh is also, you know, pretty, pretty transparent about where he, where he is. But Justice, uh, Justice Barrett is more in the, in the, at least in her questioning, she's more like Justice Roberts. She asks, 
hard questions of both sides, which I, you know, I think is actually a better way to be as a justice. But so we don't really have an indication of where she'll vote. I read that she said to the uh, acting solicitor general, quote, a lot of the historical evidence and longstanding practice really cuts against your position, close quote. But then he replied, yes, but, you know, the fact that an idea is new doesn't necessarily mean it's unconstitutional. Well, you know, that's true. But when it's been discussed and, uh, you know, it's not like it's it's actually a new idea. In, in 1929, when Congress passed the, the first Census Act, a statute that sort of tries to, you know, lay out the details, it was it was proposed that we exclude illegal immigrants. And it was, and people like, uh, you know, various people were, were very supportive of it, but they, um, but they uh, concluded that they couldn't do that. Congress concluded they couldn't do that because the Constitution requires counting all persons. So, yeah, it's not, it's not a new idea. It's an old idea. It's just that it's been rejected at every point, including by the Justice Department itself under prior administrations. When the, when the idea has arisen, they have said no. You shouldn't, uh, you know, exclude undocumented immigrants. And if you did, it would be unconstitutional. So the only thing that's new is that Trump is reversing, seeking to reverse 200 years of consistent precedent from the framers to Congress uh, to the executive branch itself. Well, from the arguments on Monday, or at least the way they were uh, reported, it seemed like the court's conservative majority might want to postpone a decision on the grounds that they haven't finished, the Census Bureau doesn't have a count yet, we don't know how many people they're talking about, and if they postpone it, then the case would probably become moot since Biden is going to become president on January 20th, and he's certainly not going to pursue this. Would it be a good uh, outcome to postpone this, or is this a question that needs an answer? Well, I, I think it may need an answer. So there, under the statute, um, the apportionment report has to be sent by the president to Congress uh, by January 11th. So it will be done by Trump. It, you know, and then there's a, there's an open question of to what extent can a subsequent president, after the fact, undo it? If it was unconstitutional, he certainly could undo it. But that would just then require the court to address it at a later point. I think what, what was clear was that the court recognizes that there are there is some uncertainty right now in terms of how much the Census Bureau actually can deliver on Trump's effort. Uh, and if they're unable to deliver, maybe um, the court need not resolve it. Uh, but you know that Trump is going to seek to deliver on this. He's put a whole bunch of political appointees in the Census Bureau to, for this purpose. So they're going to be you know riding them hard to do it. You know, I, I, you know, if, if I were betting, I would say the court may well put off a decision for a, a short time, but I think it's going to have to resolve this one way or the other. I don't think the question is going to go away, even with with Biden coming in. There's if so, if Biden comes in, he tries to undo it, then there will be a constitutional challenge to the undoing of it by Biden, and at the end of the day, it'll turn on well, was Trump right that you could exclude undocumented immigrants or not? So the underlying question here is, who is represented in Congress? Is it the people who are citizens and lawful residents, or is it everybody? What does the ACLU say about this? Well, we, we, we brought the challenge. So we say everybody counts. Um, and, you know, and I think, you know, in two respects, everybody counts. One is, you know, we're all here. We're all subject to the laws. 
We're equally subject to the laws, whether we're an immigrant, whether we're documented or undocumented, we still can be arrested for speeding. We still have to pay our taxes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and, and indeed, uh, you know, the undocumented uh, you know, prov provide a trillion dollars of our GDP every year, and they're 80% of our essential workers. So they are here and they deserve to be counted. But in addition, in addition, um, this is really about the state's right to be represented as much as it is about individuals' rights to be represented. And as I was saying before, if you are a state like California or Texas with a substantial immigrant population, there's nothing you can do about it because it's a federal power to, to control immigration, but you have to govern all of the people who are in your state. And surely you should have representation in Congress that reflects your obligations to govern all the people in your state. David Cole is National Legal Director of the ACLU and the nation's legal affairs correspondent. Thank you, David. Thanks. Always a pleasure, John. One more thing. We've got a special deal on subscriptions to the nation just for our listeners. For more progressive journalism and to support our show, please subscribe online. You can save over $30 a year on a digital subscription to the magazine and get unlimited digital access for just $14.95. To subscribe, visit thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. That's thenation.com slash podcast subscribe, one word. Again, this deal is only available to podcast listeners. So if you're enjoying the show, please become a subscriber. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of the nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of the nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. <laughs> <laughs>